Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Welcome to this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, where I'm joined by Annie Duke. Annie is an author, speaker, and decision strategist. Her latest book is called How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Annie's previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. I highly recommend both books for innovators and strategists. As a former professional poker player, Annie has won more than $4 million in tournament poker. She's the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. Annie and I dig into her journey as an accidental but wildly successful poker player. We talk about life experience choices through the intersectional lens of mixing tab with vodka, chewing mint bubblicious, and waking up with Cheap Tricks Dream Police LP. Annie believes that our life comes down to two things the quality of decisions we make, and luck. We discuss her work exploring cognitive biases that impede our ability to make good decisions and prevent us from objectively reviewing the quality of our decisions. One particular phenomenon we discuss is resulting. Annie explains resulting from a poker perspective and Pete Carroll's play calling in Super Bowl Forty Nine. We explore the role of luck and self-serving bias and how we struggle to acknowledge luck when there is a positive outcome, yet blaming luck when there's a negative outcome. We also cover some interesting ground in the realm of forced quitting and the cognitive headwinds that prevent us from looking at or for alternatives. It was an honor having Annie join me on the show. Thanks to Annie for her time and insights, as well as the work that she's doing to help young people develop better decision-making skills. I hope you enjoy the episode. Annie Duke, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. If you don't mind, uh, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, do you, where do you want to like? I was born in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, so, well, why don't I start there? No. I, uh, so, I was born into um, a family of teachers. Um, uh, my dad is actually kind of an interesting guy. His parents, um, he grew up in West Philadelphia and went to West Philadelphia High which people who live in Philadelphia will understand, like, you know, it's like a pretty random public school. And, um, but, but the thing that was interesting about him was his dad, uh, I think he finished sixth grade. I think he never, he never made it through middle school. Um, Cause his dad was orphaned actually. And then he had to, you know, he left school and had to start working. And I think he was like, a, he started off as a door to door salesman. Um, but this is what I think is so cool is that my dad has a PhD. Um, and I just love that, like one generation, you know, that happened. So, 
the other thing that I think was very funny was, so his parents, um, you know, obviously they're not, uh, they're not super sophisticated in terms of education. So there is a, a selective school in Philadelphia called Central. Uh, it's actually pretty famous. Uh, and you have to, you know, you have to apply, you have to get in. It's, it's, you know, pretty rigorous to get in. It's like um, Bronx Science or Stuyvesant in New York. Uh, so anyway, my dad, you know, lived in West Philly, was going to West Philly High, and, and the, the high school was like right around the corner from where he lived. And he got into Central and his parents would like, why would you want it? Like, we don't know from Central, like the school's right next to us. Why would you go there? And he's so mad about it that uh, a couple years ago, um, for the holidays, I gave him a t-shirt that said central on it. So anyway, so that's, this is, you know, you asked me about me, but I just yeah. like that little detail about my dad. But anyway, he, he ended up making it out and, and uh, he, uh, he got into UPenn and Haverford College. He went to Haverford College, I, I suspect, because he wanted to get farther, because UPenn was like a couple blocks from where he lived. That's what I suspect, although I've never confirmed that with him anyway. And then he uh, went off to Harvard Law and hated it. He finished after his first year and ended up moving into a master's in English and then was an English teacher for most of his life at a school up in New Hampshire. And um, so, you know, and then while he was teaching, he went off and got his PhD. He did a sabbatical and went off and got his PhD. So I just, I just love that arc, you know, and, and kind of what education will do for you. But, uh, but the key thing there is like, uh, my parents met over a game of cards at Harvard. <laughs> And, um, and cards were, I guess, in our blood. And uh, that's what we did for fun. When we were growing up, we would sit down, my dad, you know, this was in the 70s. So there was lots of shag in the house. And I remember my dad had a shag carpet in his uh, den. And we would go in there like probably four nights a week, maybe. We just play all sorts of games, me and my brother and my dad, like gin and no hell and whatever. And then by the time I was 14, I, I was subbing as my dad's bridge partner. Um, and yeah, that was pretty fun. And then I went off to college and I was thinking, you know, there, there was no like, oh, you're going to be a poker player for a living then. You know, this was not, poker wasn't on television. It wasn't, um, you know, there was no internet poker at this time. And this is going to update me. People are going to really be old. And the, the answer is yes, I am. Um, uh, so, you know, this was, I went off in the eighties, you know, and it's like, if you, if the, the idea that somehow you made a living at cards like that, no. So I, I thought I would become a teacher, you know, sort of follow in the footsteps. And so I, I went off to college and I, uh, then went to graduate school at UPenn and I did five years worth of PhD work and I was planning to go off and become an academic. And right at the end, actually, in fact, as I was going out for my first job talk at NYU, um, I had been struggling with like a chronic stomach thing uh, and it ended up becoming acute and I got sick and ended up in the hospital and canceled my job talks and needed to take time off to recuperate. And when that happened, I didn't have a fellowship anymore. Um, when I was in school, I had a National Science Foundation fellowship and they gave me some money to live on and I didn't have that anymore. And uh, you know, my dad was a school teacher, so it wasn't like money was falling from a tree over there. Um, right, right. And so like, I just needed money. I just needed some way to support myself. And at that point, my brother, Howard Letterer had already been playing poker for quite a while. He, he had sort of started off as what we call a degenerate. Um, he also got into 
Columbia, uh, which is where I went to college, but he deferred um, because he decided he's actually a really good chess player and he decided he wanted to study with a grandmaster. Um, and so he was going to do that for a year and then and then go to school. And um, uh, during that year, he kind of started playing poker and he might have lost his college fund, <laughs> which was small. Like my grandfather had been sort of like donating to this fund through our lives. And I think we each had about six thousand dollars, which was not for nothing, by the way. Like right, it was right. nice. Like he, he my grandfather had been sort of putting this money yeah. in over the course of our lives. And so we built up some money. Uh, which my brother lost. Um, so that's what what we call a degenerate. Uh, and he was he was playing at a place called the Bar Point, uh, which if, for people who know backgammon, that's the the, the middle like there. The Bar Point is like one of the points that you really want to make, the one that's right next to the bar. Um, anyway, and uh, and so it was a backgammon club. That is the point on 14th and Sixth, which was in no way gentrified. And if you went in, like, I think there was like a pizza parlor. And then if you went up the stairs, it was like this kind of smoky, whatever. And in the back, there was an illegal poker game. And it ran from Friday night till Sunday. And by that, I mean, the players would play from Friday night till Sunday. And it was like the middle of the 80s in New York. And so they're like, all like doing cocaine. And like, I mean, it was just whatever, I, I, you know, it was just like a drug den and poker. It's like everything bad that would make someone say, you cannot be a poker player because you'll end up in the back of some backgammon club on 14th and 6th, you know, like the, doing the stories cocaine. that parents share to, right. to keep somebody on a different path, right? Exactly. Like playing for 72 hours straight. So, so my brother, that's how he lost his college fund was like the 72 hour cocaine and poker uh, when he was 18. And at some point in there, and, and actually he, he lost so much money that like he didn't have any money to live somewhere. And so they gave him, there was a little room that was in the back that was right behind where the room that the poker game was. And they told him, you can sleep there. There was like a futon. You can sleep there and you can do errands for the game. And because people in the game would be like, I need a sandwich, go get me a pizza. I need some coffee. I don't know. I need some more cocaine. I have no idea what's happening there. Anyway. And so the idea was we're not going to pay you any money, but the players tip you when you go do this. So this is what my brother was doing when he was like 19 years old. So he's doing errands now for the game. I, I know you asked me like to no, tell this you about is, me, yeah, but this like is... I've decided that I'm just going to tell you this great story. So and if I can just interrupt there for a second, this was you were feeling sick, and this was was the healthy lifestyle that your your brother was pushing you towards, as an right, example. Yeah. So, well, this was so this all happened like this was all happening like ten years before. Okay. We get to my decision point. So, so this is when I'm in college. And this so is I'm setting your frame, though. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so this is like as this is like my first year of college. This is happening. So, um. So I'm at Columbia, like, you know, living my parents' dream over here. <laughs> my brother's in this back room and he's doing errands for the poker game. And so what he would do is he would like do errands until he had enough to buy in. It was a very small buy-in game. I think a, I think the game might've been like a dollar three, which would be like, I suppose if you were on a cocaine binge for three days, maybe you would lose like 500 or $1,000, right? So, you know, less than an eight ball of cocaine. I don't know. 
<laughs> so anyway, so he would like go and do the errands and then he would build up his money and then he would be able to buy into the game and then normally he would lose it. But at some point he, you know, he remember he was like a master in chess. Like this, this person is very, very smart. He won the math prize his junior year in high school, like super smart guy. Um, obviously a very good at games. Like he was an amazing chess player. And at some point it dawned on him that maybe this was a game that he could get good at. And he found a book. I think he started reading a book by David Sklansky. And at that time, again, remember poker's not on television. It's not, there are no poker books, right, except right. that this guy, David Sklansky has written some poker books. There was a book, I think from a guy named Ray Z, there was super system from Doyle Brunson. And there was like a book on tells from Mike Carroll, but this was like, I mean, it was sparse. The literature was sparse and there was no YouTube. Like you could, and there was no Twitch streaming. Like no, no masterclass to watch. No, uh, right. You're not watching masterclass. You can't go watch the best players in the world Twitch stream. You can't go look on YouTube and see like amazing hands or analysis. There's no like running analytics across the game on a computer. Like there aren't computers. I just want to say that. I mean, yeah. there are, but it's like a yeah. Mac SE 40. Yep. So, um, so, so he sort of, re he starts reading this book and it's a book called The Theory of Games. Uh, and then he also had like a, an advanced Holden book. Um, and he's reading that and, and he's, you know, and slowly but surely what started to happen was he would like go and he would cobble together his money and he would sit down and start playing, he would win. And then he figured out something else really important, which was, oh, all these people are playing for 72 hours, like just doing Coke the whole time. What if I like played and then slept? and then came back in and played and then slept and then came back in and played and slept. And, and I could actually do this for three times while they were all playing for once. And like, if I'm not doing cocaine, I'm gonna be thinking more sharply than they are. And like, maybe I'll like lose the Coke and sleep uh, and I'll read a book. So there, there you go, that's your, your life advice. <laughs> I, lose the Coke, sleep, read a book. So he starts doing that and he actually starts to do really, really well. And he basically does so well that he ends up uh, um, breaking the game. Like that was the end of that game. And so then he went off and he found some other places to play, starts moving up in limits, um, ends up at a place called the Mayfair, which had a game. Uh, and now he's playing like 50 and 100. Like remember he's playing dollar three. Yeah. Uh, ends up by the time he's 23, he's at the final table of the World Series of Poker. I mean, this is this is from, you know, 19, like, literally in the back of a room that like one day he had to actually vacate and find another place because it needed to be fumigated for real like that's a real thing so so you know with, with just like you know what I, I don't even know i'm sure there was a drug dealer playing in the game because that would have been a yeah. big home run so anyway and then he ends up at the world series of poker and he starts taking this very seriously so that's all like happening while i'm in school so by the time that i get to this point where i'm like hey i kind of need some money my brother says well, you could play poker. But remember, my brother's really good. Yeah. So this is what my brother says. I'm gonna cut off those like first four years when things were going really south for me. And I'm just gonna teach you the stuff I figured out. So so I started off playing also in like the basement of a smoky bar, right? This was one that you could smoke indoors, particularly in Montana. You may still be able to smoke indoors right. in Montana, I'm not sure. But it was just like you'd walk in, it was like, <laughs> it was just like a cloud of smoke. And I think the average age of the players was probably like 68, I'm gonna guess. And the average uh, gender of the players was male. Right, right. <laughs> like super male, like cowboy hat. Um, so you didn't uh, blend in right away. 
no, I was like 20 something, you know, and yeah, I was like, I, the, the only women I ever saw were dealers, like they were dealing the game. Yep. I mean, yep. I don't mean, I guess we were just talking about drugs, not right. drug dealers. <laughs> they were card dealers. Yep, yep. So, so it was like, you know, and I was just playing with these, you know, ranchers. So, but you know, unlike my brother who had to have a learning curve. I mean, I did have a learning curve, but he kind of started me like somewhere already pretty far into the learning curve. And so I did not lose my college fund while I'd already finished college. I didn't lose my college fund. I didn't, I started winning right away. I like I won the first month I played because the stuff that my brother taught me was enough to, to beat the quality of, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to beat a world champion, but I, it was enough to beat the quality of opponent that I was playing. And um, so, you know, that was during my time off. And then I, through what I would describe as a terrible decision process, meaning absolutely no decision process. I just kind of kept doing that. And despite the fact for being, you know, a month away from defending my dissertation, I didn't actually go back and do that. And I didn't become a professor. I became a poker player and I did that till 2012. Um, you know, but the thing that I always say is like, I think, uh, you know, academic, it's like academics and cards are like kind of in my DNA. And by the time, the early 2000s rolled around. So this was, you know, just, you know, less than a decade into my poker career. I started thinking about the way that poker and cognitive science kind of speak to each other and behavioral science speak to each other. I started giving talks and um, doing a little consulting. I wrote a book on poker, which was actually kind of thinking about the decision aspect of poker. But then I really wanted to write the reverse. And by 2012, like so much of my time was being spent on this more like the business consulting uh, the speaking, and then also kind of thinking about it from a more academic frame. And I really, really wanted to write this book, which eventually becomes Thinking in Bet. So I retired from poker. I moved back east, which is where I belong. I'm not a particularly good West Coaster. Yeah. Uh, and um, for one thing, I eat a sandwich occasionally. And uh, nothing against West Coasters. I love them. I have lots of friends out there. But like I would go hiking in Runyon Canyon and it would be, you know, 22 year old aspiring actresses and like look, look, you know, full makeup. And I was like, you know, that's like such a schlub. <laughs> so anyway, I'm happy to be among my yeah. own over here. And um, anyway, so, so, and that's sort of, you know, that's sort of where I end up here and now, now obviously writing books, but here's the coda. The coda is not, by the way, the coda doesn't involve cocaine. But the coda, well, it could be, right? Like if I'm going to come full circle. Yeah. Full circle could be, and now I have a terrible coke habit. Um, I've made more poor choices. Right. The coda is, I'm back at Penn. That's the coda. Doing research with Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers. He's whispered in my ear that I, it should end up in a PhD. And uh, and I teach. I, I do some exec ed teaching at Wharton. And... Um, that's the, I think that, but I, I've never really thought about that. I was like, there's two ways that could have come full circle. I, any, I love it. And <laughs> I know uh, that was really long, but. No, and just, just a, a couple, a couple things to, is when, when you were at, at the top of your, your game poker wise, um, friends of mine, I lived in Minneapolis at the time and at our house, we, we would host just a social <laughs> winner take all $10 buy in poker. It was just love it just for and mostly for the conversation, you know, and, and enough that 
you know, you win a hundred bucks and, and you get bragging rights was basically it. But, sure. uh, but what was fascinating for me is my background from an academic and research perspective is, is basically how teams and organizations confront uncertainty, Oh, how they so make you like that. That was a good lab for you. Yeah. I love it. So now that they watch, and so sometimes we would, we would also watch uh, the poker games um, and but then when you came out with thinking and bets for me, that was like these worlds converging for me that, uh, so I, I loved, I love that. And then also your, uh, your book, how to decide what's, what's kind of interesting for me too, is for four years, I worked at ACT as we were trying to be more innovative, move them away from paper and pencil. So the cover of your book, how to decide <laughs> kind of resonated with me. And I, 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 th I still think every time I pick up your book, I try to brush off what looks oh, like. Oh, I'm so happy, by the way. <laughs> that was my goal. Yeah. That was my goal. It's a nice little Trump loy. Are, by chance, are you a fan of Elvis Costello? Oh, I love Elvis Costello. I, listen, I just told you about like the early 80s in New York. Like, what do you think? <laughs> well, are, do you remember the album cover for Get Happy? it created a lot of frustration with Rick because it, it looks yeah. like it's worn out. The circle. Right. Looks... The circle is worn out and he's <laughs> leaning forward, as I recall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also what your book reminded me of. I was like, did somebody oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it looks like an old worn thing, but then yeah. he sort of lean. It's also he's so it's it feels sort of 3D because he's leaning yeah. into the. Yeah. And my wife, who's an education professor, just make, connecting some dots here. We, we met through uh, uh, an Elvis Costello reference was how, how we ended up. Oh, meeting. I love that. Well, so, okay, so I just Elvis Costello, so this is so great. Yeah. So when I was at Columbia, there were uh, two really popular bars. Um, one was called the Marlin and one was called Cannons. I actually realized I was walking around Columbia with Stuart Firestein, who, who's a professor there, and it was like, I was I was I was walking around like five years ago and I hadn't been in that neighborhood for a while and I realized that I navigated the neighborhood by the bars as a college student should right, right. but I, that was still my map of the neighborhood I realized oh and then also La Rosita which was like the it's open at four in the morning Cuban food and you could get like a dollar you could get the biggest thing of rice and beans you've ever seen when you were like completely wasted after walking out of cannons so anyway but cannons had an amazing jukebox um and Elvis Costello was on there, like Allison, you know, yep. the classics, right? But then also like Van Morrison. So there was a lot of like brown eyed girl happening. Yep. And anyway, it was, that was, I would love to like take that jukebox and like get that playlist on my iPhone. Because that would go. just like send me into nostalgia. It was also, by the way, it was a weird time to be a college student because it was when I don't know if you remember, this was during the Reagan years. This is going to be such a weird podcast, but yeah. okay. so whatever, I'm in a mood. Yeah. So it was during the Reagan years. And I don't know if you recall, but during, before that, uh, the drinking age was set like state by state. Yep. And yep. like, I remember, cause I was in New Hampshire and the drinking age was 21, which meant like Boone's farm for me. Cause it was, what was I going to do? Right. Um, but Vermont, was 18. So people would sometimes like 18 year olds would drive across to Vermont to go get their alcohol, you know, and then sell it to the young children. So, um, so when I got to college, the drinking age was 18. And I turned 18 
two weeks into college and it was like, yes. So like, I'm going to the Marlin and I'm, you know, cannons and whatever. And then uh, it was like psych and they changed it to 19. Okay. So that happened like when I was 18, but they didn't grandfather it. Right. So it was like, I had this period where like, you're totally legal. And then it was like, no, you're not. And so then I, it was like, you know, go in and hope they don't card you. I actually never in my life owned a fake ID, which is hilarious because I've compensated about like 20 of them from my children, but like that's <laughs> a whole other story. Um, so, uh, so now I'm let's just like hope they, they were, they were just kind of loose about carding. That was sort of their, their thing. So now I turn 19 and I'm like, haha, legal again. And when I'm 19, I, all good when I'm 19, it's still 19. Then I turn 20 and they go psych 21. And now at this point, like I've been legal for like a year and I'm like, what? And now it's not just psych 21, but it's psych. We're actually going to card you. Yeah. If I, if I remember it was, didn't they tie federal like highway funds? Yes. So that's why the States became really hardcore about it. Yeah. That was Reagan's big thing was yeah. like six. It was like, you know, 55 state saves lives. Right. Yeah. And, but it was like, and you won't get your federal high, high highway funds unless you make the drinking age 21. And I just like to say states rights, man. <laughs> I I grew up in uh, Northern Illinois. Uh, so uh, Rockford, Illinois, home of Cheap Trick. Um, and. <laughs> oh, I have a dream police story for you. If you want this to go really weird, I'll tell you a dream police story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, a weird theme on my podcast is many innovators that I talk to have a strong connection to Cheap Trick. There uh, you go. But, uh, yeah, it's such it, a weird hat. <laughs> Illinois, Wisconsin uh, was the same thing that you were describing. So uh, Illinois was 21. I live, so Rockford, Illinois is almost right on the border. Beloit's the next major town in Wisconsin. There were drive-through liquor stores in Wisconsin, basically because there was so much traffic of people just coming yeah. up, purchasing. Yeah, and I think basically. Wyoming ha may still have <laughs> drive-through liquor stores. Yeah. So I do want to get into some of your phenomenal research and work, but I need to hear, I need to hear your okay. dream police story. I, listen, I, I just want to say something also, just for the record, like I, I'm not, I'm not that heavy a drinker. Um, I, I've, I've, I'm a very social drinker. Let's just say that like, I was very social in college, but I just want to say that, but, um, but I was, I've never been like, I have a glass of wine at home. I, I just want to say that. Cause I think people would listen to this and be like, that girl has to get to AA. <laughs> I just want to say that. And this, this is not a podcast this is actually just an intervention. I've been asked to sit down. <laughs> right. But listen, I just would like to frame this. Like, yeah. first of all, I'll talk about when I'm young and then right. anybody who was anywhere near New York in the eighties is going to understand what the hell right. I'm saying. Right. Um, but this is, this actually occurs before I get to New York in the eighties. So, okay. So when I was a teenager, um, I went to a high school where the culture was like really around like the Grateful Dead. So it was like everybody was wearing do-rags. And the big thing was like, listen, you had to know the lyrics to all Dead songs and you had to be really into like space, right? Like you had to go to your shows. It was part, it was like how you fit in. Um, and my brother was like a huge deadhead. Oh, and the other thing was like, not only was he a huge deadhead, he like still is. So he, when he like, imagine my brother, like at like 40, 
um, like going around to dead shows and still taping them. And now he like follows fish around and like his iPhone cover has like the circles and like the best like holiday gifts to ever get him are like t-shirts that have like, like fish references that only fish fans will know. Anyway, so whatever, when I was at, I, I, I'm, I actually, oh, do you want to know something? Look Absolutely. at what I have on right now. A great, oh, a Grateful Dead t-shirt. Okay. Yes, but I don't actually listen to the, my brother was still into it. I grew out of the Grateful Dead, although I do like my t-shirts. Um, and I grew, grew into more like, I'm much more about like Jack White. Yep. Yeah. That's where I went. So I went like Jack White, Arctic Monkeys, but then also like Willie Nelson. Imagine that like mashup. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with for my my dad's record collection. I think part of it is I basically grew up listening to really old country like Johnny Cash. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Exactly. So you need like the old like Johnny Cash, like Merle Haggard, like Willie Nelson. But then you can see what the through line is to like Jack White, Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, because I think I ended up in Minneapolis mostly because in high school listening to Husker Du and Soul yes. Asylum and there Prince, different, different, Prince. completely different genres. I saw but. Prince in concert at the LA Forum like 12 years ago, and he was still amazing with like two hip replacements. There's, there, there's a master crafts person, right? Right, like, yeah. So like in college, like Prince, yeah. hello. Um, and then obviously I just told you what the jukebox, jukebox yeah, yeah. was. So you know what I was listening to there. So uh, so I end up out of the Grateful Dead by the time I get to college. And now I'm like, you know, Husker Du, Van Morrison, like um, the replacements, the Smiths, yep. right? Like, okay. And then, I, and then I end up with like, then I get into like Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and whatnot, but also like huge Jack White, White Stripes. Yeah, you know, whatever. Anyway, so, but, but at this time it was like, it was like all Grateful Dead. Okay. So, so here's my, here's my cheap trick story. You're like, oh wait, yes, this is a cheap trick. Oh, she went off in a, okay. So I'm like 14 and I have never had alcohol. Do not like the taste. Um, in fact, in my Canon's days, it was always like tons of cranberry juice with vodka. Like that was the only thing. And I still like, I don't drink hard alcohol. I don't, it's literally. So, uh, and I, I don't like beer. So like I have to, I had to, I had to really work at it. It was sort of like a job. So, um, so my friend Renee and I, uh, we make a plan that we're going to do, you know, do some alcohol, yeah. right? Have some alcohol, like as 14 year olds will do. And um, my mom, I steal some alcohol. She has like Smirnoff or some horrible stuff. And we pour it into tab cans. So <laughs> we empty out some of the tab. There's, there's a little bit more cheap trick and tab. There, there's, there's a zeitgeist element of all of these. This is going to go, this is going to be a great story. You'll see. <laughs> so, so we got the tab, which is disgusting. And, but at the time, you know, whatever it was, ta it was, the, it was the time. It was the time. Right, exactly. So, so we had the tab and we poured some of the tab out and we put alcohol in. I would like to say for 14 year olds who have never drunk, our ratios were off. <laughs> <laughs> and now we go from my house and we start walking into town. So I like lived on the outskirts of Concord, New Hampshire, and we're walking into town and we're drinking our tab cans. And we also have um, Bubblicious so that people won't smell it. But you know, do you remember it's the mint bubblicious where everybody 
there was a urban legend that it had spider eggs in it. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> so, okay. So, so we're do we're yeah. tab vodka and bubblelicious. Needless to say, we get really drunk. And so now I'm like really drunk first time in my life. And um, I think at some point we made might have like fallen asleep. Some I don't know, whatever. We're really drunk, but we make we get into town and we go to um, a clothing store and a record store. And my friend convinces me to buy these khakis that are. What is the color that I would describe them as? Kind of like if you mixed lime green and chartreuse together, I guess. Very 80s, very 80s, right? Yeah, so I, I got those. She convinced me to buy those because she said they look great. Yeah. Remember, I listened to The Grateful Dead. I was wearing like this. And you're all hopped up on Bubblicious and Tab right now. <laughs> I am. And, you know, I, I was wearing like flowy skirts and, yeah. you know, whatever. Like, but I never, I never had alcohol at this point. Like, I'm kind of a, actually sort of straight lace, but whatever. But it doesn't sound like it from this. I had my moment. I had my period. So, um, okay. So she convinced me to buy these, like, chinos, like these chinos in this color. Um, and then we go to the record store. And, of course, like, I'm overlooking at, like, you know, the dad or the stones or something. And she hands me dream. And she's like, you have to get this album. It's like the best album ever. And so I'm like, okay. And so I get it. I remember she was also trying to convince me to get some Van Halen, but, but I, whatever, I went with cheap trick. And um, so I bought cheap trick and then, I don't know, we like stumbled home and, you know, I passed out, whatever. And I woke up to the ugliest pants I've ever seen. And I was like, what is this album that I have? And I listened to it and I have to say, I appreciate them more in retrospect, but at the time you can imagine uh, being 14 and uh, really liking the Stones and the Grateful Dead that I thought this was the worst thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> and why did they have this album? Because I was so convinced to buy it when I was totally drunk. And the next time I saw Renee, I was like, here, you should have this album. And I gave it to her. Now, what I'm hearing are the seeds of 14-year-old Annie for let's make good choices. <laughs> let's let's review, like if, we, if to steal some of your language, if we did some decision-making hygiene on this, what would we think of? Well, our... don't, don't make decisions when you're drunk <laughs> on tab, vodka, and bubblicious. We're not going to recommend that to any, yeah. any team now, under I, stress. I do want to say now, like when I hear cheap trick now it, it's got that nostalgia thing going yeah, for me yep. and so i will totally listen to it, it, you know? it and this, in the same way that i can't resist paradise by the dashboard light either i mean go back i i just go back listen to cheap tricks first album cheap trick because that was they were they recorded that but, but they they were basically playing 200 plus nights a year like just bouncing around like the Midwest, playing anywhere they could. And just like in a kind of a Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours loose, you know, broad, broad stroke kind of way, but they really honed their craft. And I think um, they were already becoming popular when uh, Dream Police was released, but those, the first two albums, I think are spectacular. Um, well, I will, I will have to go back and listen to that. Is this where you were expecting the podcast to go? Uh, not necessarily, but I keep it, it, it it's, 
It can go anywhere. But I, like you said, Cheap Trick comes up a lot. Uh, and um, a couple things I did want to cover if it's all right. Oh, like, are we going to talk about actual? We're not going to talk about my drinking problem. <laughs> no, I want to talk about your book. <laughs> Uh, I want to yeah. talk about the uh, the Alliance for Decision Making because um, most of my friends probably think <laughs> they, of me they as- They may fire me as a co-founder after. <laughs> they, most of my friends probably think of me as like kind of this like kind of caustic asshole. But one of the most heartwarming things was actually when I read what the Alliance for Decision Making is doing. And I'm already predisposed to, I think- Well, thank the, you. The things that are going to advance us when we're dealing with complex problems is better decision making, and so I where I'll just frame where I'm coming from. Kind of throw my mental model on the table for you to either kick around or uh, agree. But just so you know where I'm coming from is I I work with teams where basically they're struggling making the transition from they used to be really good at making um, tame or uh, you know dealing with tame or kind of complicated problems. But now when they're dealing with complexity where they really struggle because complex adaptive systems don't yield to previous best practices, but they tend to kind of stealing from <laughs> poker language, they tend to double down on what they did in the past. And it, it almost, they dig bigger holes right for themselves. So that's why I love- um, I know a secret that you don't. <laughs> does, it, no, does it involve really, bubblicious? Does not involve bubblicious. Lay it on me. Either way, I'm open. I, I just, I just closed a deal for my next book. What? And it can might have you, something to do with what you were just talking. About. Can this? Am I allowed to leave it in the podcast, though? What you're yeah. saying? What the topic area is? Yeah, you know. But li listen, <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yes, you're absolutely right. We have the intuition when we enter into a decision process that when the world tells us, hey, things aren't going so well, that obviously we'll pay attention. Um, I think part of the reason maybe that we have that intuition is first of all, it seems pretty logical. And second of all, I think that we can see so clearly in other people, like, oh, yeah. there are the signals, like you really should be doing something different. But what the research shows um, is that that is not just not true that we don't respond, but that we actually escalate our commitment. And there is a whole bunch of research on this. There's an amazing, an yeah. amazing uh, behavioral scientist whose name is Barry Staw. Um, he is not nearly as famous as he should be. I'm hoping to fix that because he should be so famous. Um, and just like across a whole bunch of different domains, like this is what he's shown. And so like one of the best examples of this, I think is um, just like that really classic um, story, you know, where you have um, Festinger, Leon Festinger, it's called When Prophecy Fails. This is pretty famous. A lot of people yeah. probably already know this story, but you know, they people go there in a cult and they're like, the aliens are gonna come and destroy the earth because humans are so horrible, um, but we're the righteous and, and good. And so uh, we're gonna be in this cult. And then when the aliens come to destroy the earth, they're gonna come get us. And this is a little detail of that story that I'm not sure that people really know. So people, people know, I'll just give the part that people know is everybody thinks, well, obviously when the aliens don't come, 
because they're supposed to come at midnight at a particular on a particular right. date. Obviously, when the aliens don't come, everybody's going to go, oops, and they're going to leave the cult. So that's sort of what your intuition is, right? This is highly relevant to maybe some cult-like behavior that's happening today, right? So, uh, so, so everybody kind of knows the part where it's like that happens, and you know the aliens don't come, and then they just change the date and they they stick to it. But what they don't know is actually sort of what you're talking about. That it's not just that the people kind of stuck with it, but that they became more committed. So there's two people in particular um, who were like very sort of iffy on the whole thing before the aliens were supposed to come. They were like, they were still in the cult. They weren't leaving, but they were having doubts. They were really having serious doubts. Like, I don't know, is it a, maybe, maybe I should leave, maybe I should stay, I don't know. So they're quite doubtful beforehand. Um, and then the aliens don't come and you would certainly, your intuition is, well, the people who are doubtful beforehand, I mean, they would, they would be the first to leave. But instead what happens is that they start, like they become the most, they advocate the most. They start talking to the press. So this particular cult had been very press shy prior to the aliens not coming. And then all of a sudden they start like giving interviews and doing all this press about how they're right and the cult is the right thing to do. But the people who are particularly eager to be doing that press are the ones who had the more doubts beforehand. So that's really classic case of escalation yeah. of commitment. Um, so I'm super, as you can tell, I happen to be super into this topic right now. Yeah. So what I, one of the things I, so, uh, even though it's complex systems, the, one of the examples I use, which is not that complex, but to me, it's to speak to the emotional kind of identity and the work identity that people conflate That's because right. a lot of times they were known as a problem solver, right? They, and they, they fix these things and they could do it better and faster. And the example I use is, is from firefighting. For years, it was see a fire, you suppress it with water, fire, water, fire, what you get better, get better, get better. All of a sudden, a grease fire is introduced, right? And what happens is you dump water on it and it actually makes the problem worse. And so right. I'm stealing a lot of my stuff from uh, the MIT, Forrester, and Kona kind of uh, sense making and system dynamics world. Yeah. But that is, yeah, it's where. Uh, managers tend to be really adept at identifying the problems. They can sniff out a problem really quickly. The hard part is they they tend to push the solution lever in the wrong direction. And so that's what, a lot of your work that I really appreciate is um, how can we separate ourselves from some cognitive bias that gets in the way? And um, let me just I'll, I'll finish why I love your work <laughs> and then ask and then then uh for the audience also state what I think is incredibly powerful about your framing. But what I love about your work is especially how to decide. To me, there's a reflective nature and through a workbook, there's distributed cognition. So you can keep these things suspended right as you're working on it. But the reflection and the reps is something too for, for teams and organizations that I just find really surprising uh, from a sports perspective. Think about the amount of practice that goes for one hour of play, like a football team. Or we were talking about bands, how much they rehearse before they perform. But in business, I don't think we practice decision-making at all. And then we put ourselves in high-pressure meetings and we don't have any good skills or habits to really fall back to. So that's kind of my my broad stroke when we're dealing with complex stuff or in the innovative space. Yeah. And then as a human side, and I just love your framing. And so if you don't mind riffing on this for a little bit or just kind of dry, how you got to this clarity, but I... Also, if I'm getting this correctly, but I feel from your work, you, you've, you've established that there are really 
really two things that guide our life. It's the quality of our decisions and luck. And a lot, and a lot of times when we're successful, we don't want to admit luck was part of it, right? There, we we ignore that humility, right? We don't want to be vulnerable. That hey, I I, I just stepped into something really lucky, right? Like in my career where I was lucky, the web had no standards. So a goofball like me could start designing, trying to figure stuff out, but there, there's no way some of the companies that hired me <laughs> early in my career that I could probably get into now, right? right. I, so I was lucky, but uh, the notion of luck and the quality of the decision. And so, sorry, before I turn it back, just drinking college town, education, tying these all together. My, so I said, my, my wife's a professor in the college of ed and we're in a, a big 10 college town. So bar scene is pretty popular. Uh, lots of times at night as we're leaving dinner, my wife will just, uh, just say kind of loudly, make good choices <laughs> to the, the college students around us. So I love really what you're doing on, on choices, but do you mind talking about either the, like, did I have that right quality of decision and luck and, and how you kind of came to that? Yeah. So, so by the way, just kind of circling back to the Alliance, which I was so appreciative yeah. that you mentioned, which I, which I co-founded actually with my husband. Um, it goes back to this idea that the way your life turns out is just two things, right? Luck. And you could think about like in the real macro sense, right? Like just who are you born to? What time are you born? Like, it's very different life for me if I'm born in 1600 versus if I'm born when I am, right? Just in time to buy a cheap trick album. Um, and, you know, and then also like for me, like think about the difference between being born in America versus being born in, um, you know, Afghanistan, right? Right. Like as a woman, that's a yeah. pretty big difference. Um, so, you know, so, and then there's just also the issue of like, how tall are you? Right. Like it's, it, tall people become basketball players, people who are five, three don't that that's just a matter of luck. Like, you know, that all of that. So, so, so that's like in the macro sense, but then there's also, you know, to your point, right. Taking nothing away from your skill. Um, you happen to be alive and at the right age. Uh, with a particular skill set that was really good for what was happening at that moment, mm -hmm. right? So there, there's a lot of luck involved in that. And that's not to say, say that you didn't execute on the luck. It's just that there's a lot of luck involved in that. Right. So, uh, and that's true for me as well. Like, obviously, I, I, if my brother doesn't become a degenerate and then a great poker player, um, I certainly am never going to play poker. Like, it's not never going to occur to me at that time because I can't see it on ESPN. You know, oh, maybe I'll do that. Right. I mean, so did I execute on? Well, sure. But it's like there's all this luck involved in, in the fact that I even ended up there, including, by the way, the luck of getting sick. Right. So so we, we've got luck, which is clear, but then we have the quality of our decision. So whatever the luck is going on, you can still make better quality decisions in any environment that you're in. That's including if all your choices stink, by the way, uh, maybe more importantly, if all your choices stink. Because if all your choices stink, those little differences are going to really matter, right? In decision quality. So that's the the skill portion of things. So that's it. There's luck in the quality of your decisions. And the collision of those two things is how your life turns out. So from our perspective, if we're thinking about how do you empower people to have to have better lives? Well, it's like I can't change the luck stuff, but but I can teach you to make better decisions. So that's really what we're about. And then what we say is like, if you can teach people to make better decisions and simply put like, what's true, what to do, what, what to do, right? That's the way that you would think about yeah. that.
then they'll have better lives. And then obviously you end up with a better society. Right. So, so that's where we are with that. And, and so, yeah, so like just, just that particular framing that I talk about really is really at the core, like that's the core of the mission for the Alliance for Decision Education, but it's the core of the mission for my work is to get people to start thinking about these things. You said something so good, which is like, it's so hard to accept that luck might've caused this success. But then also what I would say is it's so easy to accept that luck caused a failure, right? So like, I was actually thinking about this example. I was, I was talking about this before I got on with you. Yeah. Um, and it, this is how much it hides in the shadows. So let, let me take it from a poker place first. Thank Look, you. There, You get bad cards all the time. So I can be in a hand and it's like, uh, you, the, if the queen of clubs hits, I'll lose. And any other club, um, uh, any other hand, uh, card, rather, I'm going to win. You know, and obviously I'm only 2% in that. Well, not obviously to most people, but <laughs> I just said that. Yep. Uh, like, oh, you should just know your poker percentages. Sorry about that. That was... <laughs> rude. Um, every card is worth about 2%. So uh, if the only way I can lose is with a queen of clubs, it means that that's only going to happen just shy of 2% of the time. So, you know, you could say that that's unlucky, right? But when you look across a game, it's like, it's very easy to find the luck and sort of blame the fact that you lost on luck to the point where like, I would hear people say like, I raised and that person didn't know to fold. Wasn't that unlucky? Right. So think about that framing there. It's like, well, maybe your the raise wasn't good or maybe it was and they they didn't yeah. fold and that's OK. Right. Like but the framing there is so like not not on me. And so so then you can take that further and say people are so good at this that obviously you have a whole narrative from start to finish and they'll manage to start the story right at the point where luck is the culprit. So uh, uh, this is one that I've been thinking about with the pandemic. Yeah. No, right? so, that's so great. There, there are, I'm going to take it from both sides in the pandemic. There are lots and lots of businesses, obviously, that have really suffered during the pandemic. Uh, it's been horrible, um, particularly for anything that needs foot traffic. Uh, and I am, you know, obviously it's, an, it's a nightmare, it's awful. And at the exact same time, some of those businesses going into the pandemic had made pretty poor decisions just fundamentally. I'm not, this is not like victim blaming. I want to be clear about this. Yeah, yeah. This is, everything's a combination. So there, I'm sure there were businesses that, did, you know, had three months worth of runway and they were operating that way. And they weren't like trying to figure out how to be lean because like the stock market was soaring and valuations are going crazy and whatever. And so they they were not taking into account the fact that like sometimes bad stuff happens, like, you know, in 2001 and 2008 and whatever. And we don't necessarily know what it's going to be. But the whole point of having sufficient runway is to sort of uh, deal with uncertainty. And what does uncertainty mean? Well, we don't really know. And so what we have to do is build cushion against that, right? So so I, I have no doubt that there were uh, companies that were purposely saying, we don't need a lot of cash on hand because everything's going great and we have lots of revenue and so on and so forth. And so they you know, had a few months worth of runway. Now, if you go into a pandemic with a few months worth of run runway, you're probably gonna fail. So when you go back and you look at your narrative, what people will tend to do is they'll say, 
what could I do? There was a pandemic. That mm -hmm. wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. Now, when you go into the next business, obviously, if you start another business, that's not great because you might want to take a step back and say, this was a very unlucky thing that happened. And there's no question that that was a very large contributor. But let me think about what are the decisions that I made that made me more vulnerable to that? And so, so again, this is not victim blaming. So right. now let's take that to the flip side, right? Your Zoom. Now, I'm not saying that Zoom fundamentally wasn't a great business beforehand. I actually don't know. Um, I'm not saying that somebody who invested in Zoom in 2019 wasn't a genius, but I don't know that. They, they, might, they might have just been like, oh, I used it. I thought it was a cool product. It's not a particularly good reason to invest in something. Right. So I don't know. I really don't know. What I do know is that no matter how good the decision was that you were thinking about, the result is outsized to that decision. That yeah. most of the result that comes to the value of Zoom today uh, is due to something incredibly lucky that happened. And again, that's not to say it wasn't a great business. Like I'm not taking away from their success. Yeah. I'm just saying that when we look at the, the, the magnitude of the result, we know that that has a lot to do with luck. And I think that you're gonna see this in the pandemic, right? Like there are businesses that really benefited from the pandemic and they're gonna be telling a story about how amazing they are and how they were prepared and how they took advantage of it and they had so much skill and they were, you know, so on and so forth. And, and telling the story about their incredible acumen. And then there's gonna be all sorts of businesses and, and people who suffer during the pandemic and they're gonna be telling a story of bad luck. And the problem is we wanna get those people to meet in the middle and think about both pieces, like both sides of the equation. This is an incredibly important concept for poker in yeah. order to become good. Um, and so that's something I've really taken out of my poker life into this. Um, and you know, from the cognitive standpoint, we're talking about self-serving bias here. So we just want to avoid that. Thank you. And uh, I mean, we were, we were touching upon it and, and folks that are familiar with your work will know that this, this um, framing that you have for it. But if you don't mind talking about resulting a little bit, because I, I, it's funny sometimes when you go through life linguistically, kind of stealing from Kenneth Burke, uh, if you don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. And then when you do how you can see things and um, I had the like maybe loosely resulting kind of made sense to me, but when you, you, you put it together and labeled it, I loved it. And you also had a great story that brought it home was a, a recent Super Bowl play calling. Uh, do yeah. you mind sharing either the power of resulting or if you if you sure absolutely so okay so so the thing we just talked about is called self-serving bias and it's something that we tend to do when we're kind of thinking about our own results but mostly we're thinking we're, we're thinking a lot about other people's results and it's really important to be able to think about other people's results really clearly uh, from certainly from like a managerial standpoint, it's really important because you want to understand like who's making good decisions, who's making bad ones, right? Um, uh, you know, when we're, this is, this is a lot of like, not just like how we manage or how we are as leaders, but also how we learn. Um, so when I sit down at a table, somebody else sits down, like I can learn a lot from them if I'm thinking about what they're doing in a rational way. So uh, there's a bias in cognitive science, which uh, no offense has a super boring name, which is why you didn't know it, uh, which is called outcome bias, <sighs> right? And it's just like, 
you know, I love confirmation bias or whatever, because people get it, right? It's like, oh yeah, I know that, like a confirmation bias, that's super sexy. Like outcome bias, people are like, so, so the problem is that this thing that has a very unmemorable name, and so I, I agree with you, right? Like I, my work when I was, it was a PhD student was in linguistics. Like I get the power of labeling in order to allow people to have better access to a concept that's important. It doesn't create a concept, but it, it, it allows, it defines that concept for you, right? Um, I, so I agree with you, like having a good name for something is really important. So what's interesting is that in poker, we did have a name for this. And for and I, it took me a while to make the connection and realize, oh, no, this is something that, that that's how unmemorable outcome bias is. I, it, it took me uh, like years to figure out, oh, yeah, I'm talking about the same thing. Um, and what we call, like among my little group of poker players, we called it resulting. And basically, this is what what it would be. Like you would be telling me a story about somebody, you know, a hand that you had played. And uh, one of the things is, is that elite poker players actually uh, are pretty good at avoiding um, self-serving bias and actually fall into this problem more. You're, you're more likely to end up resulting. And basically what would happen is you'd be describing a hand where you'd say, uh, you know, blah, 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 and I won. And I think that I did these things really well. And then you'd tack on, but maybe I'm just resulting. Um, and then you'd be describing somebody else's hand and you'd be like, oh, I, I think that they're a terrible player because this happened, but maybe I'm just resulting, you know, or I, if I didn't do this, but like some people would bet sports, right? And they'd say like, I, I made this bet and I laid, you know, three to two or whatever on the, the Knicks um, and they crushed it. And I think that was a great bet, but maybe I'm just resulting. Okay, so, so what were they meaning by that? Um, so this became something that like, this was so important conceptually to us. They, what we meant by that was maybe I'm just paying attention to the result and I'm not actually thinking about whether the quality of the decision was good or not. In other words, I won the hand, therefore I must've played it well. I lost the hand, therefore I must've played it poorly or you lost the hand, therefore you must've played it poorly, right? So the the I, there's a couple of examples I think that are, really, really um, very vivid of this. So the first one you mentioned is Pete Carroll, the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Um, I used to, by the way, I used to put up the, you know, I I went back in the days when I would be in person, I would have yeah. a, a PowerPoint, which would have the, that this play, which everybody remembers from 2015 where the Seahawks are on the one yard line of the Patriots. But so I would put this up and I, you know, the players would be lined up and I'd say, this is the Super Bowl. You know how you can tell the Patriots are in it. But now I realize I, I need to change that to this is the Super Bowl. You know, how you can tell Tom Brady is in it, <laughs> but <laughs> we did that. We, we did, we had the control group yeah. now this, this year. Um, but at any rate, so uh, they're, they're on the one yard line of the dreaded Patriots. The Patriots are going for their fifth Super Bowl title here. Um, and uh Obviously, Pete Carroll's a great coach. The Seahawks are great. They're on the one-yard line. They're down by four, so they need to score a touchdown. It's second down, 26 seconds left in the four, fourth quarter. So, so here, here's the thing. I've, you know, If you know football well, um, they've got second, third, and fourth down that they can try to get this thing across the goal line. Um, but there's a clock problem. They're out of timeouts, right? Well, they have one timeout. One time, sorry, so, yeah, yep. 
So, so what that means is that uh, they've only got one chance to stop the clock and with 26 seconds, that's a little bit hard. So, uh, so I, I just bring that up because it becomes important yep. to the yep. decision later. So anyway, so there's an expected play. Marshawn Lynch is a great running back and they say, oh, just hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. And I, I guess he's just going to run through the pile of Patriots because, you know, they suck. Yeah, he'll um, be in beast mode, right? It's, it's... Yeah, yeah, because, you know, yeah. um, you know, and he'll score the touchdown. So obviously this is what you should do. Now, when people are saying this, nobody's saying, and here's the percentage of the time that he'll do it. Um, what what you the, the announcers said things like, uh, you know, he'd been really performing that day. Um, you know, he was really likely to be able to score there, things like that. I'm just going to tell you that it's 20%. Yeah. Um, so like, there's a big difference between running one yard line at the 50 yard line and, and wanting running one yard at the one yard line, which is that, you know, they're spread out at yep. the 50. Yep. It's, it's easier to go on through. And by the way, 20% is really good in that situation when you have everybody piled up on the line of scrimmage, but regardless, anyway, so, um, so they say, okay, just hand it off to Marshawn Lynch because he's great and obviously he'll be in beast mode. Uh, that's not what Pete Carroll does. Pete Carroll calls for a pass. Uh, Russell Wilson passes the ball to the corner of the end zone where Malcolm Butler very famously intercepts it. And it's just like mayhem. You know, this is the, wor the, the worst play ever. You know, Chris Collingsworth is like losing his mind. Yeah. And But here's the thing. Chris Collingsworth doesn't say any statistics. He says... He says something about Marshawn Lynch. You've got Marshawn Lynch, like he's in the backfield. He's a sure thing to get through. I'd like to know what his sure thing looks like. I'm not taking his stock tips. Yeah. Um, but regardless, he's not telling us the thing we really know, need to know. And the thing we really need to know is what's the chances of an interception. But to be fair, he's calling it in game. So uh, let's look at what happens the next day. And it's just like, literally, it's like either, most people are like the worst play in Super Bowl history, but USA Today comes out with the bold worst play in all of NFL history. So Pete Carroll was asked on um, Good Morning America that week. I think basically he was brought on to apologize, you know, cause like, I mean, if you don't live in New England, like you're like, right. what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of, his like a, you know, He's supposed to apologize, I guess, you know, like prostrate on the floor or something. Um, and this is what he said. He said, like, don't you agree, though, it was a terrible call? And he said, I agree it was a terrible result. And then he says something really important. He says, if it, it, if it had been complete for a touchdown, you know, people would have seen it really differently. Yeah. And this is so insightful from him because we know that, right? Like, if the ball gets... Like if that's the game-winning touchdown, nobody's saying that's the worst call in Super Bowl history, even though, and this is the problem of luck and just, you know, skill, like how do we think about these? Even though the decision is identical either way, you have, what are the chances Marshawn Lynch is gonna get in? What are the chances of a touchdown, an incomplete pass and interception? What is it that the pass is getting me? That's a really big question here, right? Because that's the clock management problem. So let's just say that we totally agree that you should hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch twice. Let's not even disagree on that. I don't know that it's clear, but let's not disagree. If you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch the first time and he fails to score, Pete Carroll uses his timeout. If you hand it off to him on third down, that's the last play you get. 
But if you pass the ball and it fails in the way it normally will, which is an incomplete pass, the clock stops. And now you can go back to Marshawn Lynch twice because you still have your timeout. So guess what you do by having a pass either on second or third down? You, you get three plays instead of two, which I would argue anybody would want against Bill Belichick. Yeah, that your your framing of that for me to, was so important. Like, if I was just like, if we sat down rationally and said, "I'm going to give you two opportunities to win the game, or I'm going to give you three opportunities," well, then you, right, then you know what your question would be: What's it going to cost me? Right. Yes, yes. Right. Okay, that's fine. But like, was it going to cost me a million dollars? Like, what is it going to cost me? And in this case, we know what the cost of that is: it's the interception rate. Yeah. Less Which was 2%. low, right? Uh, yeah. Low 2%. Yeah. So, I mean, taking it back to poker, that, that would, would it's we It's like class- hitting a queen of clubs. I was going to say, was that, would we, would a poker player call that a bad beat? That, that was yes. just, yeah, it was, it was a like, terrible beat. We, anything else in the deck comes up and we're okay. That came up. You either have won the game or you move on to the next play with the clock stop. Right. So, so that's the thing, but, but yet when that ball is the game winning touchdown, the headlines are, this is why he's going to the Super Bowl. He out Belichick. Belichick, bold play, sends Pete Carroll to a sure Hall of Fame birth. Genius right? Pete like, Carroll <laughs> makes the right call. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. You know, it's like Andy Duke became a professional, like a world champion poker player. Therefore, the decision must have been great to become one. No, it was a terrible decision. So uh, seriously, it really was. So um, I got very lucky. Yeah. So, and I'm not saying that I didn't like have lots of skill in the game and things like that. It's like, I, I just sort of was like randomly, like, I don't feel good. I'm going to play poker. Ooh, look, I'm winning. I guess I'll do this. It, it was a horrible decision. It just happened to work out well. So, so this is a case where it's a great decision and it happens to work out poorly. And this is the whole problem because every single day of your life, you are doing this Pete Carroll thing. And here's the deal. You watch that. And what is your conclusion naturally? If you're saying that was a terrible decision, then you're saying, if I were to get into that situation, I should not pass the ball. Right. And of course you should pass the ball. That's the whole point. It was a great choice. So it's like, you know, you don't close the sale. I'm the, I, I shouldn't use that tactic anymore, you know, or worse for, from a leadership standpoint, right? Uh, an employee uh, that you, you know, somebody who's on your team who owns a project shuts the project down because they're good at seeing the signals that it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this employee is terrible. They failed to complete the project when actually their decision process was saving you a hell of a lot of money and creating a tremendous amount of productivity for you. And right. yet you're just like Pete caroling them. Yep. And yep. the person who just sticks to it and like, perseveres and waste their time on something that is not going to create any kind of change for you because they're because you're just you you're like i have a need for closure and it's you have to meet your goals that that person is is continue you know because they haven't because they're losing on paper but you can't see it because they haven't just shut it down that person gets a big bonus for continuing on something that is wasting your time costing you productivity, costing you money. And, and the opportunity cost of not doing other right. things that might work for you, right? Right, because we're all going around and Pete Caroling people. I, Annie, thank you for that. I, one, of, one of the other things and how to decide that I wanted to cover, and I'll just set this up quickly with um, 
one of my first classes in mass media at uh, the University of Iowa under Sam Becker, who's just a great, wonderful professor. Uh, one of the questions he asked, and this this is your standard, um, uh, like 300 plus kind of required, uh, you know, first year, second year kind of course. But he asked people to, uh, okay, we're getting set up. We're going to be talking about mass media. There'll be advertising. There'll be marketing. There'll be positioning. Uh, how many people here think you are influenced by TV commercials? Oh, and does nobody raise their hand? Very few raise their hand. And then he goes, okay, great. Okay. Now, just thinking about your neighbors or your family, how many of them do you think are influenced by commercials? And almost everybody's hand goes up, right? <laughs> and then he just pauses. And I just want to make sure, but, but we, we have 300 people here that aren't influenced by commercials. Okay. This is going to be a great class, right? right? And that set it up. And I thought about that when I was reading in your book, uh, how to be the least popular guest at a wedding. Yes. Is it okay if you just share that quickly? Sure. <laughs> so, okay, listen, so this, this. It's a Daniel wonderful Con frame. Yeah, so Daniel Kahneman, this is something Daniel Kahneman talks about quite a bit. It's uh, the inside view versus the outside view. And one of the ways, a, a different way that you can frame it, which I think is also really nice is a want versus should. So uh, when we're looking from the outside, we're sort of in should mode, right? Like that person should quit their job because they're obviously miserable, right? But when uh, when we're in it, the, it's a want thing, right? It's like, I don't want to be a failure. Uh, how am I going to justify all the decisions I've made up until this point? Who am I? Um, and, and and you keep going, right? Okay, so, so one way to think about like want versus should is like, I'd like to be healthy, but this cupcake's yummy. Okay, so um, we can think about that sort of outside view in two ways, right? Like that should outside view in two ways. One is like looking at other people, which is what which is what the um, uh, professor was saying, but uh, you can also do it by doing some time traveling and kind of getting away from the present moment. So that would be like, I know not now, but when you were 10, do you think you were influenced by television commercials? And then everybody's gonna raise their hand because they'll be like, oh, I was late, yeah, because I saw Tickle Me Elmo like on the TV and then I was like screaming at my parents for it. But the reason is that you're a little outside of that, those identity issues, like those, those things about who we want to think that we are, um, which is influencing the way that you think about yourself in the moment. And that gets us a little bit more to the outside view. When we can think about ourselves sort of in the distant past or even by the way, in the distant future, right? Because that, that's that battle of, I want a cupcake now, but I want to be healthy in the future. So I can see sort of it more from the outside in the right. future. And this is this thing also like, you know, look, when somebody, how it's so much more often that like somebody gets out of a relationship or they, they finally quit a job that they've been miserable in. And th then they look back at it and all of a sudden now they can see it from the outside. Right. And they're like, I should have done that a lot earlier. Right. So that's that, that difference between the inside view and the outside view. So the inside view is the world from our own perspective, applying our own mental models, but also interpreting the world basically in the way that we would like it to be. In other words, to reinforce the beliefs we already have, like confirmation bias, um, to, to move our self-narrative along in a positive way. We'd like to think well of ourselves. We don't like to think that we're wrong. 
We don't like our beliefs to be torn asunder, even if that would help our decision making in the future. So that's all like living in the inside view. And the outside view is what's true of the world in general or the way that the world looks from somebody else's perspective. So I think that one of the best examples of this is this is like, okay, so I use this a lot, by the way. <laughs> so you, you're at a wedding and you're science, you know, you're just like a cold hearted scientist, I guess. Uh, and you're like, you get to the, you know, the couple, you see the couple and you're congratulating them. Oh, that was a beautiful wedding. Um, I'm just wondering, cause I'm trying to collect some data, right? It's like the professor in class, yep. right? Yep. I'm just trying to collect some data. I'm just wondering, what do you think the probability is that you end up getting divorced? <laughs> so I've never actually done this, by the way, I just want to say this. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I get they probably kick you out of the wedding, but but their answer is zero. This is why we got married. It's true love. We love each other so much. It's amazing. And that's why we don't have a prenup. But what's interesting is that after you get kicked out of that wedding, <laughs> obviously you're like escorted out, but it's at a big hotel. So you crash another wedding. And now you see that couple and you say, oh, I was actually, I was just in another at another wedding, um, I kind of stopped by here. Hope you don't mind having some cake. Um, what, what I asked them what they think the chances were that they were going to get divorced. I'm just curious what you think about them. And you know what they're going to say? 50%, 40, 50%, because that's the base rate. Uh, and the base rate is just like, that's, that's in general, how often couples get divorced. And this is exactly what your professor did, right? Like, what do you think about other people? And that's where you're thinking about sort of what's true of the world in general. And you have a much clearer view of that versus what do you think about yourself? And, you know, I made the joke about the prenup, but the point is that this actually does have real consequences, right? If you're going to get divorced 50% of the time, because that's the base rate. And look, you may be more reasonable. You may have thought about it more, all these things. So maybe you could toggle it down a little bit, right? Maybe uh, you're a hothead, and you haven't had a lot of really, uh, you know, committed relationships before. So maybe you toggle it up a little bit. I don't know, like you can toggle, but you can't be that far off the base rate, right? Yeah. So if that's the case, a prenup is probably a good thing. It like simplifies if it happens, but people don't have those. And I think it's for two reasons. One is that they don't live in the outside view. Uh, they live in the inside view where it's true love. And obviously they're never going to get divorced. But I think the other thing, and I think this really hampers decision-making is we confuse imagining with it actually happening. And I think that we have, first of all, when we imagine we experience a lot of the same feelings of failing. And so we don't think ahead to what if we fail because it doesn't feel good. But also I think the other problem is, and I think it's the reason The Secret is so popular, that horrible, awful book that Oprah recommended um, and I'm not recommending that you burn it. I'm just recommending that you put it away somewhere where no one will find it. Like you could bury it in your backyard. Yeah. Um, cause I'm not a book burner, but bury it in your backyard. Um, but th it's that magical thinking of, if you think it, it shall be so, right? So the fact that I'm thinking about it and I've got a prenup that you have this idea that somehow this is going to make you fail. Now, maybe like you think about relationships in kind of some kind of sacred way. I don't know. Like, so let's just set that aside for a second, but this happens in business as well, right? If we have a strategic initiative that we're putting in place and I, and I say, okay, so let's imagine it's a year from now and this thing has just cratered, 
right? So this is called a pre-mortem. We do post-mortems. Yep. It's called a pre-mortem, uh, like a prenup, but for business. Um, so you just imagine this thing is cratered, right? Uh, let's all take out a pen and paper and get a list. Don't talk to each other and write down the top three reasons that they think that we think this might have cratered that has to do with our own decision making and the top three reasons that would just have to do with plain luck. And everybody does that. And then you put those all together. But people don't like to do that because, first of all, I think it's like, well, what are you saying? Are you saying we're going to fail? Like, uh, what are you like some kind of you're not a team player here or something like that? It's like, right, well, right. no, are, this is going to reduce our chances of success because we're all going to be thinking about the failure now. No, it's going to increase your chances of success. Right. It's going to cause us to fail. What? No, it's going to cause you to succeed. But people don't like to live in that. And so then they don't do that. And what what I always say about that is like. So then you're constantly surprised by what happens in the world. So your relationship goes south and you have no preparation for it. Or your relationship goes starts to get bad, but because you haven't gone through this exercise of thinking, how might it go bad? You don't see the early signals. You don't have a plan in place that says, as soon as these things happen, we should get our butts to couples therapy. Yeah. Right, or whatever, the, like the things that could actually reduce the chances. Or in the case that it actually does fail, you don't have like, I don't have the stuff set up like a, a prenup that would help me to deal with it. Right. And, and so I just find this whole thing of like, so, so the problem is that part of living in the outside view is seeing in a, the world in a way that doesn't, isn't so self-promoting in the moment. Yeah. Now it is self-promoting in the long run because it's going to help you to succeed more, but we're all about like this moment. I need to feel good about myself. Yeah. Thank you. A couple of thoughts. Cause I, so I, a lot of what I do in the innovation space, right. Is we're playing with the unknown. We don't know what it's going to be. And a few things that we try to, that I try to do with teams. One is uh, using the, the, the pre-mortem, but I, I also do a future presser. So this goes well, what went well, this yeah, yeah. so that's, what, yeah, that's, that's to, tr um, to try to balance it. But you're right, because it's seen as you're not a team player. This being negative. Why are we introducing negative talk right now? Right. And so I, I do balance it out. So you have the yeah. pre-mortem. You also have the back cast. That would be the future presser. Yep. Now, yep. Okay. Thank I do want to, I want to just like add a nuance to what you do. You may already yeah. do this, but, but when uh, this is something I think uh, as I've seen across people who are, you know, doing like the front page headline, is it good or is it bad? Um, uh, I, I haven't seen people uh, do this much, but it's something that I have in the book and it relates back to this problem that I talked about with luck and skill. Um, when I have people do backcasts, I specifically say three of the reasons have to be your own decisions and three of the reasons must be luck. And on the, um, and when I have people do the pre-mortem, three have to be skill and three have to be luck. The reason why is that on the pre-mortem side, imagining the headline is we failed. It's all luck. They're all like, well, a pandemic happened and the market cratered and, you know, the our competitor, <laughs> right? Like whatever, right? Like the, my contact at, at the company got fired. Yeah. And yeah. so then I didn't have a contact to be able to close the sale, right? Like, so everything is framed as not my fault. Mm -hmm. And then interestingly enough, on the back cast side, it's all, I made great decisions and I, you know, so like you could imagine like, okay, uh, sort of left to your own devices, um, you know, why, why did you fail to meet your weight loss goal, right? It's like, uh, well, maybe I had a really bad metabolism. 
or I got really busy at work and these projects are really important. And so I just couldn't fit it in, right? Like these kinds of things are very sort of offloading the responsibility if you kind of hear them, right? And what you don't hear a lot is I did not, absolutely did not stick to my diet. Not when you're left to your own devices, right? But if I make you do that and I say, I know life will get in the way sometimes, you can give those reasons but some of it has to be your own decision-making. You can see that more clearly. Now on the flip side, when you're thinking about your own success, it's all, I went to the gym every day and I followed my diet and, you know, it's no, and none of it is like my metabolism was great, right? <laughs> none, none of it is like, oh, well, actually uh, my workload got less. And so I just kind of had more time. It's even if it is, then it's like, and I use that to work out, right? So, uh, so it's actually, I think it's really, really important to, to, to make people live in those two spaces because otherwise you get this asymmetry in the reasons why things are happening. So I want to think about, well, maybe Zoom did well because the pandemic came along as well as maybe we did well because we had the capacity uh, and we were set up for that kind of traffic. And even when um, things got glitchy because all of a sudden uh, we had enough engineers and uh, we were agile enough and all of those things are also true, but somewhere in there should be a pandemic happen. Right, right. Annie, I want to thank you so much for being here. This is an absolute uh, pleasure for me. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like we wasted so much time with my no, stories of like this, this drunken is, teenagehood. This is great. You know, and, and I'll tell you right now too, one of the things that I hear that fascinates me is a lot of the really interesting people I talk to, there's a major pivot in they were going this direction, something happened. And like, they're, it, like, for lack of better terms, just some GPS rerouting to their life. I mean, I've talked to people that were, uh, they were going to go to uh, talk to somebody who was going to go to uh, college on a vocal scholarship, and they developed vocal nodes in their uh, senior year of high school, yeah. and the scholarships were pulled. They do something completely, right? You were on that academic path, right? And I mean, it's come full circle. Talk to people that have had terrible sports-related injuries that made them leave sports, but then they did something else. So um, yeah, so so actually, so it's interesting. So so let me just say something on, on yeah. that note, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I, I'm really fascinated by what I think about as I sort of think about it as forced quitting. So, you know, one of the things we've talked about is like people put their heads down and like they go with the project until the bitter end, right? Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, you can look at that and kind of say, well, maybe I shouldn't have stayed in that job so long, or maybe I shouldn't have dated that person for so long, or maybe whatever. Um, maybe I should have turned around when the weather got really bad and I was on top of that mountain. Um, so, so the thing is like that I think is really interesting is the whole point of that is like, uh, it might have been good if I was sort of thinking about other things that I could have been doing and exploring those and then I could have been exploring opportunity costs and understood that better. And I could have figured out sort of where my attention should be, but we, we tend not to do that and there's all sorts of reasons why uh, that have to do with you know short loss aversion, which is a concept that Kahneman and Tversky talk about quite a bit. It's different than loss aversion. People can go, it, it's, a, it's a subtle difference, but it's important. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about these escalation issues. Obviously there's sunk cost, status quo bias. There's like, when you sort of look at the list of biases, there's, there's kind of all these headwinds against sort of switching what you're doing. So, so I actually think about force quitting, like it's something I've been thinking pretty deeply about. And there's a, actually an interesting study that was done. Um, the London tube shut down a line because uh, they were like doing maintenance on the line. So obviously there were all these people who used to go that way to work. 
And so they shut it down. And the question is like, what happens then? So it's kind of like I got injured. I gotta go check some other stuff out. So uh, so they shut it down. They then look at the behavior of this nice natural experiment. They look at the behavior of the commuters. And when they open the line back up, like 90% maybe of the people go back to that line or 95. But then there's this cohort that has found a faster way to work. Be why? Because they were forced to. They, they, it was like somebody said, I know- They got knocked out of autopilot, groove. right? Right. Like, I know you're in your groove and you're just like, this is the way you go. But now you've had to go find it. And then went, oh, there's a better way. I had no idea. And I think that that's what you're describing, right? This, that's the London tube. It's, yeah. and, and the thing that I have been trying to think about is if we know that, and it's obviously it's not always true, but if we know that if you're forced out of something, you know, um, because of an injury or whatever, sometimes it's because you get fired, um, that sometimes you find better stuff. And the problem as I see it is that if you're not forced to, you're not looking. And so the question that I'm, I've been thinking about really deeply is, is how do you get people to look even when they don't have to? Yeah. Because the fact is you always have to. So because the world is a changing place. That so yeah, this is this is where I'd love to talk to you more in the future. This is this is when I'm talking about sense making and especially like in the innovation or the stability of an your your business or organs as a system, right? Any of the ecosystems that you, I mean, oversimplifying the the sense making, but you have to continually explore a wider system, right? That you're yeah. changing perspective somehow. You have to be able to map that system, put visualizations to it so that you can talk about it, challenge assumptions, but then you need to also experiment so that you can learn from it, right? And then it's, it's this ongoing cycle. And I think from a business side, I think businesses get too tied into maybe a new fad that's productivity based that the context is, is they don't they don't think about the context. So it's applied broadly, right? Like so Six Sigma, right, where we're not having deviation from the output that that is incredibly important when you're making medical devices or precision matters. Right. right but, yeah. but you can't. But a lot of times they want to apply those metrics to uh, innovation teams or experimenting. Right. And they're so out of context. No, the whole point, the whole point of experiments is actually the opposite of that. Right. Right. You're and looking for the volatility because that's where all the good stuff is. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where I'm seeing. You no, know, that that's the that's the evolution thing. Right. Like imagine yep. imagine if evolution had a six sigma strategy right like the species would die mm -hmm. because the whole point is like look that the, the you want to think about the environment is changing right it used to be a great business to sell washboards yeah. right so we can spend a lot of time making sure that our washboards are really precise and we have really good process around that whatever but then like washing machines happen <laughs> okay so we know there's like you know like climate changes i'm not talking about climate change but i'm saying like back when we were evolving you know it's like it's an ice age and then it's not and it's you're living in the tropics and then you're you know your descendants are living in a desert and yeah there's food and there's not and that varies from from year to year and whatnot right and so you have this changing environment and so like think about evolution as a strategy it's we're gonna have all these weird mutations Right. Like this is the this is like the huge advantage, by the way, of, of sexual reproduction, 
right? Like, cause we're just gonna combine genes and then some weird crap is gonna come out. Um, and most of that weird crap is like, sorry, you, you're not fit, right? Like, mo but then there's this weird crap, which is like, who, that's a really big advantage. And if you don't have that, then what happens is when your ancestors have been in the tropics and all of a sudden that becomes a desert, if you don't have some weird expressions of your genes happening and some strange mutations and maybe some atavisms, right, then your descendants are going to die. Because yeah. what is good for surviving in one environment is not necessarily good, going to be good for surviving in another environment. I think there was a really interesting, I'm sorry, I'm like a total evolution nerd. Yeah. There was an interesting, I'm going to butcher this, but there was some sort of lizard or like a guana or something like yeah. that. And it was, it lived on an island and it was, um, it was a carnivore. So there's certain things about the jaws of carnivores, like they're smaller, obviously like they don't have molars to like grind. Right. Like if you think about like gorillas have very flat teeth, um, carnivores have sharper teeth and like think about a dog's mouth versus a gorilla's right. mouth. It's all these sharp teeth. Um, and if you look at a dog's jaw, they, it tends to be more narrow, whereas like a gorilla's jaw, jaw like car herbivores tend to have wider, like they have to have stronger mandibles. So, um, okay, so so we have these lizards, they're, they're carnivores, um, and that's what they do. And then like a big storm happens, and this actually happened. And these lizards end up drifting on like some driftwood over to another island. And that island doesn't have any of the stuff that they eat. It's only got vegetation. And literally, it's like within a generation, I think. They're all herbivores and they're faith, they're, they've got the jaws and like the teeth of herbivores. And so why, why are you able to respond to that so well? Well, because no doubt on that other, you know, back on the meat island, yeah. that's what we'll call it. Um, <laughs> You know, there were there were, you know, little tiny lizards being born that had sort of different kind of teeth and like different kind of jaws, but like it wasn't being selected for it because that wasn't particularly great for survival. But like that stuff was being expressed. It's just that it wasn't like reproducing very well. Right. And now the lizards get like sent off to this other island and they reproduce and the ones that are a little more like suited for for herbivoreness, um, like they're doing better and they're more likely to survive and you better be living your business like that. And that is not a six Sigma business. So we need to understand like, where do we want to be applying that kind of thing? And it's when we're exploiting something that's working really well. And we would like to continue to exploit that. And we want to make sure that that is precision and efficient as possible. But we also have to recognize that whatever that is that we're exploiting may go away. Yeah. So you better have your fingers in some other stuff, which is supposed to be messy. That's the whole point. It should be super messy. I think I might have heard uh, heard this one actually from uh, Alliance for Decision Making podcast was uh, from uh, insects, like from bees and ants. On Michael Mobison, one of my yeah. favorite humans in the world. When yes. to explore and when to exploit, right? Yeah. And how how do we balance that? And from an, a really nerdy pandemic thing for me, I am uh, I'm going to start. 
uh, my hand at beekeeping. So I've been doing a lot of research. Oh, that's on, so fun. Yeah. Um, so super he organisms. kind of wiggle their butt. So yeah, top yeah. secret. I've had two long conversations with Michael about this topic. Awesome. Um, and he's really helped to inform my thinking as he does on all of my thinking. Um, he actually was so generous with his time on how to decide and he read it as I wrote it. Um, and I am so grateful to him just as a thought partner and a human being and as a friend and everybody should go read the success equation and think twice and oh my gosh he has um, an amazing white paper called who's on the other side which I think everybody needs to go read uh, and then he wrote actually just an incredible he just wrote an incredible piece on the transition from public markets to private markets which I just think like for people who are interested in that space they should they should be going and checking that out. Um, so anyway, there we go. My pitch for Michael Mobison. Thank you for bringing him up. And no, also, that, you should listen to him on the podcast on the Alliance for Decision Education it, podcast. Yeah, it, it it was it yeah to anybody listening, it, it was a phenomenal uh, interview and podcast. Well, he's so was. smart, and also Joe Sweeney, our executive director, is also really smart. Yeah. And so, like ha those two people having a conversation together is just like anybody should listen to that. Annie, thank you so much for joining me. This is this again. This is a pleasure. Uh, and uh, before we go, I just want to make sure that folks know about uh, your latest books, right? uh, Thinking and Bets, but now uh, How to Decide, which starts to bring it more into a, a workbook, so yes. people can practice these habits. Get in. So, uh, I mean, the the big value proposition there, if I may, seems to be how do we get better at those decisions. Right. We know luck's involved, but we also the more that we make better decisions, the more we can capitalize on on That's luck. Exactly right. Right. It's compound compounding yeah. interest. Excellent. And uh, also just remember, uh, kids avoid the vodka tab and bubblicious combo. <laughs> Do they even make tab anymore? No. No, I think they, oh, I think it was recently just pulled. I don't know if we could find Bubblicious either. So you know what it, it was. Like, this was this. By the way, the sadness of our childhood. It was like Tab and Fresca. Oh my God, right. <laughs> it was the greatest thing ever. I when I went to college, they they finally had Diet Coke, and it was like, oh, this actually tastes like something that isn't disgusting. Yeah, fres um, Fresca and Funyuns were a popular thing in my house when I was a there kid. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's, anyway, the the only good thing about my childhood because i mean that's not true i should say the only food thing that was great about my child because let's just admit the 70s were a bleak food time right it was like hamburger helper and and like stovetop stuffing right and do you remember potato buds oh my god i don't oh it was like dehydrated potatoes that you mixed with water and oh we had the hun we had the hungry jack version of those there you go and it's like really you can't just throw a potato in water mom come on um uh, but it was like the, it was the age of like science as food yeah. anyway. Um, so it's like Fresca and tab. So here was the highlight of my childhood. I grew up in New Hampshire. I'm sorry. I know this is, I'm just in a mood today. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire, which is, uh, you know, people don't, and I'm not sure how many people can identify New Hampshire on a map, but it happens to, it happens to border Vermont. And um, Vermont is where Ben and Jerry started. And Ben and Jerry's, people don't know this, but Ben and Jerry started as a regional item. Regional meaning like Vermont and New Hampshire. Right. So we would have people come visit from far and wide and they would see the Heath Bar Crunch in the fridge, uh, in the freezer, and they would try and they'd be like, oh, what is this? You know, because at that time everybody was like, ooh, Haagen-Dazs. And it was like, Haagen-Dazs, you have not tried this yet. 
And so we got early, we were early adopters of Ben and Jerry's, which was, which was a nice thing. Oh, that's great. Annie, thanks again. Have a fantastic uh, day. And again, thank you for all of your contributions on uh, decision making. Uh, I just, I really appreciate well, what you're doing. And uh, I should have answered your question. I didn't, but just to make sure, like I say this publicly, you're, you're right on my backcasting and my, my pre-mortems. I, I don't push it to the individual but, accountability. Well, that's because it's not something, so, so I think. But I will do that in the yeah, future. You should, yeah, so, so because it's not taught that way. But I think this comes from the fact that I'm a poker player and I know exactly how a poker player would fill those out. So I, I think it has to do with just sort of what's your frame? Like, what are you looking for, right? Like what's sitting in your field of view? And for me, this, I lost because I was unlucky and I won because I'm great. It's such a core issue in poker that when I was looking at people's, because I started off the same way, when I was looking pe at people's backcasts and pre-mortems, I looked at it, I was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, so you're saying that when we think a year ahead, that you're having a parade because you're really smart. And when we think a year ahead, you're, and, and the thing was that even when, like, even when they were sort of trying to get at something that had to do with skill on the, on the pre-mortem on the pre yeah. side, they would frame it, you know, that way that you can frame it is not your fault. Like it happened to you. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, this happens, I think, uh, with accident reports, right. It's a single car accident. And someone was like, there was a tree in my way. What could I do? Um, I don't know not be going so fast and look in front of you. Um, so th that it can be framed that way. That was kind of the point of like the, what I was saying when I said, um, you know, oh, uh, what's one of the reasons why you didn't lose the weight? Well, work got in the way, you know, and it's framed as like in this passive voice, like, what could I do? And it's like, okay, but everybody has work. And that's actually a skill problem of you not saying, how do I actually carve out the time and make sure that I'm going to be doing this or should I bring my lunch to work or should I whatever but it's framed in this way that completely offloads responsibility whereas on the back cast side it was like even when I was busy I was making sure to make my lunch you know make meals on Sundays that I was freezing and they're the exact same thing it's just one you're owning and the other you're saying what could I do right so that's why I just sort of yeah so you can take that with you to take that that's for free no it's in my book i'm not yeah. telling you anything that's like a top secret right no and again just uh to anybody listening i think uh, i think how to decide uh, will improve both them individually and the teams they work on uh so highly encourage folks picking that up yeah so anyway yeah so that comes out as the decision exploration table so i sort of put it all together so you can see it all in your quadrants anyway Excellent. Thanks so much, Annie. Have a fantastic day. You too.